You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, you may find the content of this podcast difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. You should also be aware the information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Hello and welcome to First Tech's latest news podcast where we look at all the latest news and regulatory announcements impacting advisors and the advice that they give to their clients. So today we're actually doing something a little bit strange. We're giving you an update in mid-October rather than at the end of October as we're starting to send out a new email to all advisors in the middle of each month which will include all four new podcasts as well as a short quiz Woohoo! So that you can get some CPD points for listening to these podcasts. So we've got a lot of feedback. People love the podcast, but they'd also love some CPD points. So in this new email, we'll include links to further information and First Tech articles if you need any more information about the topics that we're going to discuss. So before we get started on the latest news, though, we've actually got a special guest this month, Kate Winkler from CFS's distribution team, to talk us through actually a really important new initiative to support new advisors. So, Kate, can you tell us what's going on here? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Craig. So something that we're really focused on at CFS right now is the problem of the growing demand for advice in Australia, but the decreasing number of financial advisors. And this is actually one of the things that's driving up the cost of advice and making it just inaccessible for a lot of people. The future of our industry, I think, really depends on having a steady stream of people entering the profession, but the requirement to complete a professional year before you can give advice is a pretty big barrier for a lot of people who want to become an advisor. So what I think you're just about to tell us is that CFS has developed a professional year for advisors. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And we're really excited about it. Uh, We've partnered with XY Advisor to create a dedicated community and education space for people completing their professional year. It's chock full of training to help PYs meet their requirements, things like live webinars, videos, podcasts, etc., that they can easily fit in around their existing work, study and home commitments. Um, Not only does the content contribute towards PY Advisor's structured training requirements, of which they've got to do 100 hours within the professional year. We've also got some really great stuff on there just to help with professional development so that they can master the full range of skills. Ultimately, uh, Professional Year by CFS, which is our program, is designed to help businesses develop their employees and take away some of the time and costs spent sourcing the structured training. So these podcasts, would that potentially form part of the structured training? Absolutely, but I think a really important part of the structured training is the first tech syllabus that we have. So First Tech provides us with monthly live webinars, which gives the PYs a chance to do Q&A with one of the best tech teams in the country um, and just interact with each other, which is actually a really nice way to um, to learn, I think. You know how to say all the right things, Kate. <laughs> so obviously that sounds pretty good. How's it different from what's already available? Well, to be honest, there isn't actually a great deal of support out there already, which is actually one of the problems particularly for self-licensed firms, actually, or those whose licensee doesn't have a PY solution for them yet. What we've created gives PY advisors and the businesses who support them a clear and easy pathway to start their professional year or to help finish it if they've already commenced. Um, 
there is some education out there already. Some of it's free, but most of it isn't. We've got about 40 hours of structured training on offer and we're adding to this all the time and it's all free. The first tech web, uh, webinar syllabus is obviously an important part of that, which I just mentioned. Um, mm -hmm. And I think what we're, what we're also doing differently is that what we're offering just isn't just education, it's also a community. It gives this special group of people a chance to meet each other and meet other people going through the same thing as they are, build a network, share ideas and experiences. Awesome. So if you want more information, where do you go? You can go to cfs.com.au forward slash elevate. You can join XY Advisor as a member and you can find us in the spaces menu on the left-hand side or you can just contact your local CFS BDM. Excellent. That sounds awesome. So thanks, Kate. Thanks, Greg. Okay, so moving on to Julie Fox, another of my senior technical services managers in the team. G'day, hey, Julie. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Now, Julie, there's been a lot of talk about obviously rising cost of living, you know, inflation, all that sort of stuff, but there have been some positive changes for clients uh, who've reached age pension age recently, haven't they? So this includes uh, in, increases in the income thresholds, I think, for the Cornwall Seniors Health Card uh, and changes, I think, to the work bonus scheme. Can you run us through maybe changes to the Seniors Health Card first? Yep, sure. Um, so as most of us know, the Commonwealth Seniors Health Card entitles cardholders to um, some great savings through reduced cost medicines under the PBS, bulk billing for doctor's appointments, cheaper out-of-hospital medical expenses through the Medicare Safety Net and, and lots of other concessions offered by states and private businesses. So mm -hmm. to be eligible for the Senior Commonwealth, Seniors Commonwealth Health Card, I can never get that out right, you have to be mm -hmm. an Australian of age, pension age, but not eligible for age or service age age or surface pension and have income mm -hmm. importantly below the relevant thresholds and that's what's changing. So currently, and these are from the 20th of September, the thresholds are 61,284 for singles and 98,054 combined for couples. So it was a pre-election promise back in May this year that uh, was put forward by both the parties uh, to increase the income thresholds for the health card, the Commonwealth Seniors Health Card. So that means an increase from the current 61,284 to 90,000 for singles okay. and uh, from 98,054 to 144,000 combined for couples. So some pretty significant increases in those thresholds. Yeah, really significant increases. So potentially a lot more people out there eligible for Commonwealth Seniors Health Card. I, I know that this is my parents don't receive the age pension. I've talked about them many times. And for them, this is their little age pension entitlement. But uh, it's not going to impact them because they're already in, eligible for it. But uh, but yeah, obviously some, some really big increases. Now, I, I assume that Probably the government came out with this first and then the Labor opposition at that time then said anything you can do, we can exactly do the same. Exactly it, exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> Make themselves a very, very small target, yep. Um, and so obviously next question is are they are those thresholds already in or if not, when are they going to apply? For well, them? this unfortunately is where it gets more interesting. Um, they were supposed to start from the 20th September when they announced all this, but due to the passing of the Queen in September, uh, they had to cancel uh, a week of Parliament and reschedule schedule it so the bill didn't get passed in time 
And apparently Services Australia need at least seven days to implement the change. So they've made some changes to the bill that's not through Parliament yet. So as it stands, um, the thresholds are now proposed to change seven days after the bill receives assent. But that bill is still before Parliament and there are some additional unique and added complications to that bill. Mm, okay, so <laughs> the Queen died now without paying any disrespect. It shows you how complicated the world is, isn't it? So a little old lady dies in Scotland and all of a sudden we've got impacts upon the Commonwealth Seniors Health Card in Australia. Yeah, so now you said when you say some unique and added complications, that uh, that sounds interesting, what's going on there? Yeah, I wish we didn't have to talk about it. <laughs> um, initially mm. the bill... Uh, This bill only contained amendments that were relevant to increasing these thresholds for the Commonwealth Seniors Health Code. But on the the last sitting day back on the 28th of September, two things happened to complicate matters. Uh, Additional measures were added to the bill to cover different changes to the work bonus and two other previously announced social security measures. And at the same time, A second new bill was introduced into Parliament to implement changes to those three same things. So, hang on, we've got two bills introduced to Parliament to do exactly the same thing. That's Is that normal? What's going on there? Yeah, that's not normal. Parliament is not meant to operate that way and there are certain rules and procedures to avoid this from happening, but somehow we've ended up here. Um, So we were left in this position of different changes being debated by different Houses of Parliament at the same time. So we really don't know how this is going to be resolved until until Parliament sits again on the 25th of October. And the main problem being is that this impacts just the speedy progress of changes to, to the Commonwealth Seniors Health Code that both parties wanted. Right. So this sounds like a little some political games being played by different parties in Parliament, maybe? I don't know. Um, So I suppose the the thing to take out of all of that is, yes, we have some increases to these income thresholds coming through. Uh, They're in Parliament. There's some games being played between the different parties. They'll sort that out and hopefully we'll get those changes sooner rather than later, but we're still waiting on them. Now, what about... The work bonus, what's happening here? Yep, so um, the the initial bill about work bonus um, uh, suggests a temporary change. This is what the government was proposing, just a temporary uh, change. So uh, currently under the work bonus, the first $300 of work income each fortnight is disregarded from the pension income test and mm-hmm. unused amounts of the $300 income concession can then accumulate each fortnight in this unused concession bank or income bank um, to a maximum of $7,800 each year. So what the government proposed uh, is to provide an additional $4,000 to the unused concession balance of all eligible pensioners and increase the maximum available unused balance from $7,800 a year to $11,800, but just temporarily until the 30th of June 2023. All right, so that, that all sounds pretty good. So essentially, if I recap what I think I just heard you say, it means each eligible pensioner is going to be extra, have an, immediately an extra $4,000 uh, of income um, from work immediately disregarded under the income test. 
uh, rather than having to accumulate that balance over time. So it's just an extra four grand in their income bank straight away. And eligible pensioners uh, would temporarily be able to accrue a higher concessional balance of, I think, what's that, that's going to take it from 7800 up to 11800 Is yeah, that exactly, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's great. That's, that's all going? good news. But yeah. it's, it's this two bills at once thing that is, is making things very confusing because the other bill that had all these amendments inserted into it has quite a different permanent change proposed. Um, that, the, uh-huh. that the opposition managed to get in through the Senate. Um, so in that one, the opposition um, uh, put forward, and this is this is in that bill, um, that they would raise the fortnightly amount of disregarded income from $300 to $600 on a permanent basis. So quite a different approach to um, make uh, to the work bonus there. All right. Well, I'm assuming that if that's being introduced through the Senate, it's gonna that would have to go down. So there's lots of water to go under the bridge on this one, I would assume. So, but either way, we've got some fairly significant changes to the amount of employment income an age pensioner is going to be able to earn this in a year without without an impact. Well, this year at least, without an impact to their age pension entirely. Yeah, yeah, that's ex- that's ex- exactly it. But uh, what form it takes, we'll find out uh, when it all gets passed. Uh, it's a little bit unclear at this point in time. Uh, hopefully, we'll get all some right. clarification um, in that last week of October when Parliament sits again. But, uh, of course, that's right. all going to be about budget at that point in time as well. Mm, yeah, yeah. Politicians playing games. Who would have ever thought? <laughs> uh, now, now um, also moving on to something, the ATO. So they've released a new draft ruling this month about how to test whether a client is an Australian resident for tax purposes, not whether they're a citizen, but whether they're a resident for tax purposes. So we heard about this from a, a couple of budgets ago back in 2021 when they talked about the Brightline test. Is, is this what this is? Uh, well, that's what I thought it might be, but no, it's not. And and it specifically <laughs> says that in this ruling. Um, no. Testing for tax residency has always been really complicated. And like you said, there was proposals back in May 21 to modernise it and simplify it. And under that old announcement, the previous government proposed to replace the pri- the primary test with a simple, what they called a bright line test, um, that simply a person who's physically present in Australia for 183 days or more in any income year would be a tax resident. So that sounded nice and simple. Um, the mm. proposal would have meant that individ- individuals who don't meet the work, uh, meet the proposed primary test would have been subject to some secondary tests that depended on a combination of physical presence and measurable, uh, other measurable criteria. However, um, that previous government proposal was never made law and we haven't seen any commitment from the current government to go in that direction. So instead, they introduced this new draft ruling. Um, it's TR 2022-D2, um, which is um, clarifies the current tests that we've always known for residency for individuals. Okay, so those are the four tests. So what are they? Um, so those are the ones that, that we've worked with. There's there's four tests. Um, there's the ordinary concepts test, you know, just what is residency under under normal yep. um, understanding. Then, then mm-hmm. it can get really complicated with what's known as a domicile test. 
there's a 183-day test and a Commonwealth Superannuation Fund test. And so how it works is you're a resident, uh, a tax resident of Australia if you meet any one of those four tests, but a non-resident if you don't meet any of the tests. Right. So are there any new changes they're throwing in here? Not really. Um, the ruling withdraws two very old tax rulings from the 6th of October. Um, that was IT 2650 and tax ruling 9817. They looked at things like permanent place of abode and um, the residency status of individuals entering Australia. So they've incorporated those into the new draft ruling and they've also updated it uh, to reflect um, more recent case law as well. So it's just consolidating everything because we didn't really have a good tax ruling that took everything uh, in into one ruling like this one does. So so it is does make it a little bit easier. Okay, well, that's good. At least a little bit more helpful, right? Because, yeah, I tell you what, when you go and read some of the rulings around residency and stuff like that, they are it's a very, very complex area. So what I'm essentially hearing from you, it doesn't sound like we're going to get this bright line test under the, under the new government. So we're still going to need to look at individual circumstances um, for when we're trying to figure out when someone's a tax resident, which obviously then impacts tax withheld on payments they may receive from an Australian source. So still lots of complexity by the sound. Yeah, I think they probably sat back and looked at it and thought, well, I, I don't think we actually can make it that that simple. It's, um, it's a 26-page ruling. It's got 14 different examples, and those examples are really good to show how um, uh, personal circumstances uh, that appear very similar can actually result in different people either being a resident or a non-resident. So it's good to look at the examples. But, yeah, obviously it can have a large impact because um, we know that mm. non-residents don't get that tax-free threshold that Australian tax residents receive. So it can be um, an in extremely important um, situa uh, decision in, in many situations of whether someone's a resident or not. All right. Okay. So if someone wants to find out more about that, we'd really recommend going and looking at TR22 slash D2. Other than that, thanks, Julie. Okay. Thanks, Greg. Okay. So now let's move on to the first of our tech issues that I want to address. So I've got Tim Sanderson, one of my senior technical services managers. G'day, Tim. Hi, Greg. How are you? Very well. Yourself? Good, thanks. Excellent, excellent. So, Tim, you and I are talking downsizer contributions. Now, obviously, we've seen the legislation go through, um, which has reduced the downsizer age from uh, 65 down to 60. But in the lead up to the last election, we had both sides of politics say that they were going to reduce the downsizer age further to age 55. So do you want to give us a, an update on where this proposal is currently at? Yeah, sure can. So as you mentioned, the reduction of minimum age from 65 to 60 already done and dusted applies from 1 July 2022. And as you say, in the lead up to the election, both sides proposed to further lower that to 55. Um, I think the original proposed date was again 1 July 22. Mm -hmm. But the government has since introduced a bill into Parliament early August, I think, um, which would make the tax law amendments needed for that change. Um, slightly different start date uh, being the first, um, the start of the quarter after that bill passes through and receives royal assent. But right, okay. at, at present, the bill still is in the Senate and hasn't passed. 
Okay, so they're all the changes from a tax law perspective, but regulations are also going to need to be amended to make this change from a super law perspective. So what, what's happening there? Yeah, that's right. So the, the CIS regulations really govern the acceptance of contributions by super funds. Um, so they're going to need to be amended to allow um, downsizer contributions to be accepted at an earlier age. So mm-hmm. at the end of September, um, very recently, the government registered regulations to facilitate that reduction in minimum age for downsizer contributions. But while those regulations have been registered, they won't actually commence the way it's written until the first quarter after the bill we just talked about receives royal assent. Um, So long story short, downsizer contributions reduction to age 55 remains proposed at this stage um, and then all going well look we may see those rules actually take effect if everything goes through potentially from 1 january all right terrific all right so bit of a watch this space but it's looking looking good for 55 to 60 year olds to be able to make downsizer of contributions yep that's it all right so moving on to another legislative change that may impact means tested care fees for a small number of aged care clients so here to discuss this with me is kim guest another one of my senior technical services managers g'day kim hi craig now um means tested care fees so what's what's happened here Yeah, so the the government's changed the way that they work out the cost of care for an aged care resident. So um, from the 1st of October this year, they've replaced the old ACFI, or the used to be the Aged Care Funding Instrument, with this new thing called ANAC, or the Australian National Aged Care Classification. And it's just a new way for the government to work out what the cost of care for a particular resident is in an aged care facility. Okay, so we're going from ACFI to ANAC. Is that right? Yep, that's it. <laughs> yep. Oh, I love a good acronym. Okay, well, so we're talking about means-tested care fees. So how's that going to impact that? Yeah, well, because the cost of care is being determined in a different way, um, that actually can impact some people's means-tested care fees because a resident can't be asked to be to pay more than the cost of their care as a means-tested care fee. So if that cost of care changes, that could mean that for a small number of residents, their means-tested care fee could actually change. Okay, so only a small number of residents. Why is that? Well, for most people, um, it's actually their means-tested amount rather than the cost of care that determines how much of a fee they pay. So unless you've got a relatively high means-tested amount or you're one of those people who don't disclose their means because for whatever reason you don't want to fill out all the forms to say what your income and assets are, um, for most people, you know, they have a fairly low means-tested amount and they pay a fairly low means-tested care fee. And so this change to the cost of care doesn't actually come into the calculation. But for those people with a big means-tested amount or who don't declare their means, they may well be impacted by this change. All right. So is the cost of care going to be higher or lower under this new system? It depends. But um, as an indication, the the very highest cost of care for someone with very complex care needs was $264.81 per day under the old ACFI. And now Mm -hmm. um, from the 1st of October under this new system, it's $358.41. So it's gone up, you know, almost $100 a day, which is a bit of a jump. So um, it's certainly some people will have a higher cost of care under this new regime. Okay, so f- for those re- residents, if their means-tested care fees determined by the cost of care, 
sounds like they're going to pay a high fee. They will, but it, it's not as bad as it sounds because the annual and lifetime caps are still applicable. So you can't be asked to pay more than the annual cap or the lifetime cap. So um, for those people who are paying a very high daily fee, um, it will still be capped. Okay. All right. So thanks, Kim. So where can advisors go and find more information if they need to on this topic? Yes, we're going to have a a Did You Know in the next edition of First Tech Monthly where we'll go through the change and show a few examples and that sort of thing. All right. Great. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, Craig. Okay. I think that about wraps it up for this edition of Latest News. Thanks, guys. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please note these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. All scenarios considered during the podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited and Adventist Investments Limited, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.